Your main concern has been the population bomb, as you call it in your book. Do you feel that this takes precedence over any other type of pollution, and certainly human pollution? Uh, yeah, it takes precedence in the following sense. The reason I named the book The Population Bomb was in 1968 when I wrote it, everybody was getting concerned about pollution, but people hadn't seen the other element. I thought the emphasis ought to go there. The thing that's important to remember about population control is that uh, if we want to avoid a tremendous rise in the death rate, we absolutely must have a tremendous decrease in the birth rate. Now, because the world's population is so young, uh, it means that even if we got a tremendous decrease in the birth rate, if the average family, completed family size immediately moved down to the vicinity of two, we would still face 40 or 50 years of rapid population growth. There's a tremendous lag time built into it because those young people, the 40% the, the of the people in the world that are under 15, are going to have children and grandchildren before they get old enough to die of old age. So we have this tremendous built-in lag time, which means that we've got to start instantly on population control only because we know it'll take so long. Renowned scientist Paul Ehrlich has been in the public spotlight for half a century now. Showered with accolades and heralded in the press, his message has been remarkably consistent. There are too many humans using too many resources, and the only way to avert catastrophe is population control, strictly administered by a centralized, supranational government. But there's a question at the heart of the story of Ehrlich's unlikely rise to prominence a question that must be answered. Why is it that this entomologist has become such a superstar of science, received so many accolades and awards, and wielded such influence over the public conversation on population, despite being so remarkably, consistently, staggeringly wrong about the issues he presumes to lecture the public on? This isn't a rhetorical question. It's a real one. And the answer may surprise you. Meet Paul Ehrlich, pseudoscience charlatan. This is The Corbett Report. Fifty years ago, Paul Ralph Ehrlich, an entomologist by training and a professor of biology at Stanford University, published The Population Bomb. As far as books by practicing scientists go, it was about as big as it gets. It sold more than two million copies worldwide, was translated into numerous languages, shaped public discourse around the population issue for a generation, and catapulted Paul Ehrlich into the unlikely category of superstar scientist. Of course, it wasn't a success from the get-go. It was Ehrlich's appearance on Johnny Carson's Tonight Show in February 1970, a full year and a half after the book's publication, that finally made the population bomb into a bestseller and it was dozens of subsequent appearances on the show that thrust his ideas into the national spotlight and began a wave of hysteria over the impending population crisis. And hysteria it was. It may be difficult to remember, but fear of overpopulation was, for a time, one of the chief public concerns, constantly reinforced by all manner of cultural programming. The birth rate continued to rise, and the population grew... Until now, Gideon is encased in a living mass who can find no rest, no peace, no joy. And why haven't you introduced any of the new techniques to sterilize men and women? Overpopulation so long predicted has stolen upon us. It's getting worse week by week. Because it has been agreed by the nations of the world that the Earth can no longer sustain a continuously increasing population 
As of today, childbearing is herewith forbidden. And our cities are going to be choked with people. They're going to be choked with traffic. They're going to be choked with crime. They're going to be choked with pollution. And they will be impossible places in which to live, and the explosions will be even worse. Listen to me, Hatcher. You gotta tell him Silent Green is people! Ehrlich was many things, but cautious and understated, he was not. The population bomb opens with the lines, The battle to feed all of humanity is over. In the 1970s, hundreds of millions of people will starve to death in spite of any crash programs embarked upon now. And it only got worse from there. As far as... Petroleum goes, you all know that where the action is there. We're running out rapidly. Some estimates are it'll all be gone by the year 2000, and conflict over that is getting to be rather serious. You just got to remember this. There's no way out of the arithmetic. There will never be 7 billion people in the year 2000. Sometime in the next 15 years, the end will come. And by the end, I mean an utter breakdown of the capacity of the planet to support humanity. Incredibly. These predictions of doomsday are no mere aberrations in the career of an otherwise careful and understated researcher. In fact, they barely scratch the surface of the catalog of Ehrlich's ridiculous and ridiculously wrong chicken little pronouncements. Speaking at the Institute of Biology in London in 1969, Ehrlich opined that, If I were a gambler, I would take even money that England will not exist in the year 2000. Population will inevitably and completely outstrip whatever small increases in food supplies we make, Ehrlich told Mademoiselle magazine in 1970. The death rate will increase until at least 100 to 200 million people per year will be starving to death during the next 10 years. And what of the decade after that? Writing about the Great Die-Off in the pages of The Progressive in April 1970, Ehrlich warned that 4 billion people would starve to death in the 1980s, including 65 million Americans. Most remarkable of all, decades of being spectacularly wrong have not stopped Ehrlich from continuing to spread his particularly distasteful brand of doom porn. He was back at it just this past March, assuring readers of The Guardian that overpopulation means that the collapse of civilization itself is a near certainty in the next few decades. If only Paul Ehrlich was an unsuccessful charlatan, barking his end-of-the-world predictions like a madman on a street corner, it may be possible to dismiss him as a harmless crank. But rather than being shunned as a charlatan, Ehrlich has been embraced by the respectable scientific community. He has been awarded the Crawford Prize from the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences, the World Ecology Award from the University of Missouri, the Distinguished Scientist Award of the American Institute of Biological Sciences, as well as prizes and awards from the Sierra Club, the World Wildlife Fund, the United Nations, and a slew of other organizations. He was awarded a MacArthur Prize Fellowship and became a Fellow of the Royal Society of London in 2012. He continues to deliver lectures around the world and is still sought after for comment on population and ecology issues by mainstream media outlets, and he currently holds the position of Bing Professor of Population Studies of the Department of Biology at Stanford University. But none of this, not the consistently wrong predictions, not the fear-mongering, not the accolades and career success, is as concerning as Ehrlich's ultimate solution for the problem of overpopulation that he claims to detail. Hi, my question is for Paul Ehrlich. 
Do you have any regrets about urging developed countries to use their political power to coerce vulnerable countries into drastic population control programs, having heard of the atrocities in India and China? Yes, <clears throat> definitely. If I were writing the Van and I were writing the population bomb again today, we'd write it differently. Uh, sometimes you make mistakes. I think that was a mistake. I don't think the uh, the recent thing that the Chinese. Are you going to have a question later on the Chinese policy <laughs> no, change? Please, you can go on. I'm, I'm not trying to censor what no, you're no, saying. No, no, no. That's all right. I think the uh, uh, the main problem with the Chinese stopping, I think, their one-child family program uh, is the moral hazard one. That is the Chinese. It's not going to increase their family size very much. Uh, we know now that in the past, they probably would have gotten to the same place if they had not had the relatively coercive program. It's, a, it's still much debated. Um, but some of the things we did not recommend, we said these are the sorts of things that have been suggested or could be done. A good example is we said uh, in one of our publications that it would be uh, one of the things that might be good if you could do it safely and biologically safely would be to add something to the water supply, excuse my laryngitis, add something to the water supply that would make you have to take an antidote before you could have a baby. And everybody said, that's just terrible, that's ghastly. Ghastly? It'd get rid of the whole abortion problem, get rid of the whole unwanted child problem, uh, make people make rational decisions. It's certainly one of the things that every government must pay great attention to is the size and composition of its population. It's probably the number one thing that should be in government policy. It at least is discussed in Australia. In the United States, you can't even dare discuss it. Protestations aside, forced sterilization programs were indeed something that Ehrlich discussed frequently and in great detail in his early work on the population issue. That is, before the public fully realized the horrors of his ostensible solution to the population crisis. In 1969, the New York Times reported how Ehrlich had told the United States Commission for UNESCO that the government might have to put sterility drugs in reservoirs and in food shipped to foreign countries to limit human multiplication. A 1972 article in the Boca Raton News noting this proposal decried Ehrlich as worse than Hitler, and pointed out how he opposed efforts to lift the Chinese out of poverty. It also quoted him as suggesting that some form of world governance was going to be necessary to institute international policy planning to save the globe. But most damning of all is Ecoscience, a 1977 textbook co-authored by Paul Ehrlich, his wife Anne, and John P. Holdren, who would go on to become Obama's science czar. In this book, they not only double down on the idea of adding sterilants to the water supply, noting that no such sterilant exists today, and lamenting that it would have to clear a number of technical hurdles in order to be acceptable, but they actually go so far as to argue the constitutionality of population control and even forced abortions, concluding that such a practice could be sustained under the existing constitution. In this book, they also greatly elaborate on the type of world governmental body that would be required to enact a truly global population control program, calling it a planetary regime, which they describe as sort of an international super agency for population, resources, and environment. They argue that it could control the development, administration, conservation, and distribution of all natural resources, renewable or non-renewable, at least insofar as international implications exist, including all international trade and all food on the international market. 
the planetary regime might be given responsibility for determining the optimum population for the world and for each region, and for arbitrating various countries' shares within their national limits. Control of population size might remain the responsibility of each government, but the regime would have some power to enforce the agreed limits. Not surprisingly to those who have studied the confluence of eugenics, environmentalism, and technocracy that formed the nucleus of our exploration of why big oil conquered the world, the answer to the technocrats' imaginary problem is, once again, a global system of total control to implement the ultimate eugenics program of forced sterilization, forced abortion, and selective breeding. The worst part about this proposed system of population control is that it is not just based on a faulty premise, but a premise that is in fact the exact opposite of the truth. We are not facing the ticking time bomb of population explosion at all, but a demographic winter of plummeting fertility, where a growing number of countries, and eventually the world as a whole, will face terminal population decline. It's becoming harder to hear the crying of newborns in Korea. The nation's birth rate has been on a steady decline over the past 40 years. Currently has the lowest birth rate among the 34 OECD member countries. Last year, the number of newborns stood at 436,500, a near 10 percent decrease from 2012. This means about 8.6 babies were born among a population of 1,000, the lowest since the year 1970, when the government first began recording population data. Italy is struggling to escape recession and bring down record high unemployment. Even if it manages that, it may still face its biggest economic challenge ahead, which is having one of the lowest birth rates in the world and a rapidly aging population. Demographic time bomb is a huge threat, and the solutions to that aren't politically acceptable. Raise taxes, cut benefits, uh, become more productive. Economists say Italy's problem is that more than a fifth of its population is now aged 65 years or over. And it's estimated that by the midpoint of this century, the population will have fallen by 16 million people. Japan's leaders are working on a raft of new measures to encourage citizens to get married and have children in a bid to boost the country's flagging birth rate. With fewer babies being born and a rapidly aging population, Japan is facing an unprecedented demographic crisis with vast social, economic and political repercussions. Spain has always had a low birth rate, but the impact of the financial crisis and high unemployment has further tipped the demographic balance. The number of births per year has dropped almost 13% since 2008. Today, the average household has just 1.3 children, and the average age for a woman to have her first child is 31. The world's most populous country has a dangerously low birth rate. A recent report from the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences says the fertility rate in China is now 1.4 children per woman, close to the global warning line of 1.3 or the low fertility trap. And it warns, once it slips into the trap, no country has ever returned to the replacement level. Fewer babies are being born in the United States. The latest birth statistics, released by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, show birth rates in this country are at a record low. Less than 4 million babies were born in the U.S. last year, the smallest number in 30 years. 
With its rapidly aging population, Greece is not only facing a demographic time bomb, its young generation is in the firing line of what a sociologist calls geniocide or annihilation. If a country is losing a creative young generation, they have no the means to reproduct itself. This will be a vicious cycle of degradation, of decline of the society. China, once seen as ground zero for the population bomb, is now leading the way into this new reality of demographic winter. Their one-child policy, hailed by population control advocates like Ehrlich, quickly turned into a socially disastrous epidemic of sex-selective abortion and infanticide. Now, its working-age population is shrinking, its retirement-age population is booming, and its 25- to 49-year-old population, responsible for new housing starts and most of the spending in the economy, reached its peak in 2014 and is now in permanent decline. Recognizing the demographic disaster that their attempts at population control helped bring about, the Chinese government officially dropped the one-child policy in 2015. Ehrlich's response? To call the move gibbering insanity from the Growth Forever Gang. Japan's population is now shrinking and expected to drop under 100 million, a 20% decline, by the middle part of the century. If current trends continue, the Japanese people are expected to be extinct within the next 1700 years. Low birth rates and economic migration have hit Eastern Europe especially hard, with countries like Bulgaria expecting a 30% population decline in the coming decades. The birth rate in the United States has just hit a 30-year low, and future population growth is now projected to come from immigration, not new babies being born. Mexico, Italy, South Korea, country after country in every corner of the globe is now facing a population crunch due to a freefall in birth rates and fertility. While there are many factors that play into these trends, political, social, and economic, there are certain scientific factors discernible in the statistics that point to something more nefarious entirely. Since the 1950s, a growing body of scientific literature has documented a steady decline in sperm count of men in certain geographic areas, most notably in parts of Europe and North America. Although there is still vigorous debate over the cause and nature of this decline in semen quality, endocrine-disrupting chemicals such as phthalates that have been proven to disrupt sperm production in fish are being looked at as a potential cause. The bad news is that these offending chemicals are to be found in a bewildering array of products in the modern world, from sunscreen and cosmetics to shower curtains, frying pans, and even cheese. A new study reports significant declines in sperm count among men from Western countries, and scientists aren't sure why. The researchers found total sperm count in men from North America, Europe, Australia, and New Zealand declined by almost 60%, while sperm concentration dropped 52%. Declines in sperm count have been reported since 1992, but previous studies were criticized for small sample numbers and conflicting results. This new study takes a broader approach, looking at more than 7,000 studies from 1973 to 2011. These findings have wide implications for public health. Some synthetic chemicals can disrupt or block the functioning of testosterone in the body, permanently damaging the sexual development of male children. This disruption of the human body's own system 
may be the greatest unintended consequence of the 20th century's chemical revolution. A mass sterilization exercise. Kenyan doctors find anti-fertility agent in UN tetanus vaccine. And unfortunately, this is not new. And it's actually something that has been in the works since the 60s. And it's happened in multiple other countries. And it's horrifying that they're doing this. This is what's going on. Right now, Kenya's Catholic bishops are charging two United Nations organizations with sterilizing millions of girls and women under the cover of an anti-tetanus inoculation program that's sponsored in part by the Kenyan government. They are administering this tetanus toxoid vaccine to 2.3 million girls and women. It's sponsored through the World Health Organization and UNICEF. And they've sent six samples of these vaccines to two different labs. And both of them have come back conclusively that these vaccines are positive for HCG antigens. All of these vaccines are laced with HCG. So now, half a century after Ehrlich announced the population bomb, and four decades after people like Ehrlich and Holdren wrote of the need for a planetary regime to control the world population by adding sterilants to the water supply, the world is awash in chemicals that are causing mass infertility and declining sperm counts, abortifacients are ending up in UN-sponsored vaccination drives, and birth rates are plummeting across the globe. There are some that would argue this is coincidence. But regardless of why the world is facing this infertility crisis at this particular moment, it remains the case that the overpopulation fearmongering has been remarkably successful. Ask a hundred people on the street whether there are too many people in the world, and 99 of them will answer in the affirmative. When these people, locked into this crisis mindset, finally discover the truth about declining fertility and falling birth rates, most of them will see this as a good thing. This is the real issue. Most people believe that the world is a fixed and depleting pie over whose scraps we are condemned to fight. From this perspective, every new baby born into the world is merely a competitor for a limited supply of resources. A human obstacle in the path to abundance. This fixed pie way of looking at the world is the depletionist mindset. More people means less resources to go around. The more of us there are, the poorer everyone will be. This is such an intuitive way of thinking about the world that most people never stop to realize that it is not, in fact, true. If you want more people, you must like people. Yes, I do like people, Bob. I like them, but I also admire them. Luckily, however, this admiration does not conflict with what we know about the scientific evidence about people. And let me cite a body of scientific literature, which is now more than, it's almost 30 years old, 25 years old. For long, 2,000 years and more, we know that people have believed that if you have more human beings, that there would be less to go around and that economies would develop more slowly than if there were fewer people. We can hang this idea on Malthus for convenient memory. But the idea has simply been that if you have uh, two people trying to work an acre of land, there'll be less uh, output per acre than there would be if there's only one person. That if you have ten people in the family, there'll be less uh, food and other goodies to go around than if there are only five people. 
then, perhaps 25 years ago, some economists began to explore the matter and say, let's check it out empirically. Let's look at the evidence that's available to us. Let's consider the sample of countries that we have historically and see if it really works that way. So the first of these was a man named Simon Kuznets, perhaps the greatest uh, economic, demographic, uh, statistical historian that's ever lived. And he looked at uh, the evidence for all the countries for which we have data for the past 100 years to see whether those countries that had faster population growth had slower economic growth. Lo and behold, no such negative relationship. And then he and other people also looked at the countries, the much larger number of countries, which we had data, say, for the past 25 years. And once again, no negative relationship. Exactly the opposite from what the simple-minded Malthusian theory had led us to expect for all these years. This empirical scientific research liberates us to feel good about people in ways that we might not otherwise. We can not only like people and admire them for their individual qualities, but we can also see that people on balance are good for other people. But not all people. Not all people. I'm sure there's some behavior. Not all people. But on average, people create a little bit more than they use up in their lifetimes. People leave a little bit of good behind them so that each generation is a little bit richer and lives a little bit better than the generation which went before, on average. Now, you're right that there are periods and there are places when we do worse. There are some of us who don't contribute and who use more than we, than we contribute. But on average, people give more to other people than they take. And therefore, we can admire people in the large as well as individually for being creators more than they are destroyers. Well, at the individual level, uh, what kind of person aren't you comfortable with? What, what kind of attributes uh, <laughs> cause you the most problem in, a, in an individual? That's a real curveball, Bob. I think the attribute that distresses me most, aside from the usual ugly things of people who are bullies or um, exploiters, but among ordinary good people, the attribute that causes me most trouble is lack of imagination and the inability to imagine the good things that can be created by other people. This feeds into people's fear about uh, population growth and about their fear that we are going to be running out of copper and of oil. They can't imagine. So many people simply are unable to conceive how other people can respond to problems with new ideas, with imagination, with solutions, which will leave us better off than the problems had never arisen. Julian Simon, famed economist and author of The Ultimate Resource, had a remarkably similar background to Paul Ehrlich. Both were born in New Jersey in 1932. Both attended Ivy League schools, and both became interested in the problem of overpopulation. First in the same literature and reading the same academic treatises as Ehrlich, Simon, too, became an advocate of population control. His earliest academic writing included essays drawing on his experience in the private sector to suggest ways of marketing population control programs to the public. But, spurred by doubts about whether population reduction might actually harm humanity rather than save it, Simon, 
unlike Ehrlich, went back to the data to see if the population hysteria was actually justified. Finding that the data in fact showed the opposite of what doomsayers like Ehrlich were saying, Simon began writing articles arguing against the population control advocates. But in the midst of the population bomb hysteria, it was almost impossible to get an anti-Malthusian message in front of the public. And so, as Pierre Desrochers of the University of Toronto Mississauga explains, Simon hit upon an idea for challenging Ehrlich's fear-mongering in the most public way possible. Okay, well, so uh, Simon is at home watching Ehrlich on the Johnny Carson show and he goes bananas because he sees him all the time, in his opinion, spouting nonsense, uh, things that is not backed up by the data. But then what are you going to do? Because if you know the media, you know that if it leads, it bleeds and nobody wants to listen to him. He might be, you know, the most prominent anti-Malthusian, but that's kind of like saying that you're the tallest of the seven dwarves. I mean, he has no popular impact whatsoever. And so being a marketing person... Uh, he thinks he cooks up a scenario which he thinks that uh, you know will turn out to be an offer that Ehrlich cannot refuse, and so what he does is that he makes a very public bet to Ehrlich to essentially put up or shut up, and so what he tells him is okay, select any five resources uh, of your liking for any period of time of more than a year. And if, as you say, uh, we're going, we're heading towards a Malthusian catastrophe, well, more amounts to feed, uh, finite resources, well, obviously, the price of, the of these resources should go up over time. I mean, that's basic economics. If, on the other end, the price of these resources decreases while population increases, then it will show you that uh, you're wrong and that uh, humanity is actually able to create resources, not just consume them. And so... Uh, Ehrlich uh, agrees, uh, and as you will put uh, on paper, and this is important for how we will interpret the bit later on, before other greedy people jumped in. And so he recruits two of his uh, regular collaborators, so um, your, uh, the U.S. Uh, science czar in the Obama administration, John Aldrin, who was kind of a young protege of him, and another fellow at... Uh, uh, Berkeley, uh, John Hardy, a physicist. And so uh, Ehrlich consults not only his two collaborators, but other prominent Malthusian, and he tells them, and he asks them, okay, what are the commodities that are really likely to, uh, you know, see a shortage in the coming years? And so he settles on the five commodities uh, that uh, you mentioned before. And so the idea is that, okay, they will, in theory, buy $2,000 uh, $2, of uh, these commodities in uh, late September 1980. And 10 years later, if the price of these commodities uh, has gone up, Simon will pay them the difference. But if the price of these commodity goes down, then Simon will pay them the difference. And so it turns out that uh, in uh, October 1990, uh, Paul Ehrlich wrote a checks of uh, about $570 to uh, Julian Simon, put it in an envelope, and again for young people, you know, you put a you put a paper check in a paper envelope, you put it in a mailbox, and so in uh, mid October 1990, um, Julian Simon finds in his mailbox uh, a check written by Paul Ehrlich with nothing else. Ehrlich never acknowledges that his perspective might have been wrong. Uh, he honors uh, his bet, but that's it. And then he goes on saying that, you know, uh, stupid people can be wrong sometimes. The world will never run out of imbecile. And he's, uh, he's, he's very rude to Simon and never and always refuses to engage him in a public debate. So Simon won his bet with him for years, asked Ehrlich to debate him on stage, on TV, anywhere. He would agree to anything. 
And Ehrlich never had the guts or would never demean himself, if you look at, his, at it from his perspective, uh, to debate someone like Julian Simon. The Simon-Ehrlich wager is now remembered as the bet of the century and a decisive victory for the anti-Malthusian mindset. But the real importance of the bet is often lost in the interpretation. The change in price of these commodities, copper, chromium, nickel, tin, and tungsten, was never meant to be more than an imperfect economic measure of a much more important underlying truth. That the most important resource in the world, the ultimate resource in Simon's formulation, is not chromium or tin or any other physical commodity, but human ingenuity itself. All right, a fascinating story in so many ways, and interesting, I think, for the characters of these two people, but perhaps more importantly for the ideas underlying this wager. So let's flesh that out a little bit for people who didn't quite catch this. So what is the ram- what is the ramification of, of commodity prices going up in 10 years or going down? Why, why is this important to population? Okay, well, that's an imperfect measure, and uh, Simon is the first uh, to acknowledge that, but he settles on this uh, particular indicator because, again, he's trying to uh, get Erling to, uh, Erling to actually take the bait. And so, again, you've, you've got to understand basic economics. You know, you've got supply, you've got demand, and so the more uh, commodity is sought after, the more its price should rise because, you know, more people are willing to bet on it and what have you. And so what is remarkable about the history of commodity prices is that in the last two centuries, as the uh, human population went from roughly a billion people two centuries ago to over 7 billion today, the price of virtually all commodities in um, a market economy, and uh, this is important, and uh, Simon insisted on that, the price of uh, the commodity must not be overregulated by government. The price of all commodities, despite the fact that um, huge quantities of them are consumed and increasing quantities over time, the price of all these commodities uh, has been either stable for long periods of time or has gone down. Now, of course, you've got cyclical swings in the market, and so one could argue that if, you know, the bet had taken place between a different at a different time period, uh, Ehrlich uh, would have won a few times. But the point that was always made by Simon and others is that if you take the longest perspective possible on any commodity, all these uh, cyclical swings are not significant in the long run, the trend is really down. And what that means, in essence, is that resources, even the non-renewable ones, are not just you know a fixed amount of stuff that you have in the ground, but are um, created by the human brain. And so petroleum, for example, would be a case in point. So um, throughout uh, human history, people noticed in a few places on the earth, you know, uh, petroleum seeping out of the ground, and sometimes they would collect it for a number of reasons. But really, the modern petroleum industry begins in the late 1850s in western Pennsylvania with Colonel Drake, who sees, uh, who knows that uh, petroleum can be used to develop kerosene, which is a substitute for whale oil, which are actually becoming scarce at the time. And so he brings a few people with him, and they begin to drill uh, close to the natural oil seepages of uh, western Pennsylvania. And so they use a technology that was first used in uh, salt mining. They can go down about 70 feet, and that's about as deep as they can go. And lucky enough, they drill, I'm told, because I've been there, they drill in the one spot where they could actually get oil uh, that way. And so what's interesting is that 
that um, obviously all smaller deposits are finite, but over time what the petroleum industry does in the next century and a half is to create new technologies that allows uh, humans to expand the resource base of a finite uh, thing, which is petroleum. So over time, uh, new deposits are found, but also um, uh, new technologies are developed to uh, go get oil today. You know, you go four miles offshores, two miles below uh, sea level, then another uh, two miles down, then another four miles in one or another direction. And the cost of getting oil that way is about the same as it was in the late 1850s, when with the primitive technologies of the time, you could always, uh, you could only go about 70 feet underground. So I don't know if you'll show this image, but, you know, there is obviously a finite amount of petroleum on it. We don't know how much, but we first begin... Uh, drilling for the, easy, the, the most easily available resources. And then we expand over time with new technologies. But the mistake that people like Ehrlich make the, is, the, is to think that, well, of course, we skim the best deposits first. And as a result, the price of extracting the resource will increase over time. Whereas Simon and people of his mindset will point out, well, no, look at the historical data. The price is not going down. It's not only not going up, it's often going down. And that's because on the one hand, you've got the type of deposits that you have access to. On the other, you've got the new technologies uh, to access those deposits. And what human history teaches us, even in the, the world of non-renewable resources, is that the human brain, our capacity to come up with new ideas, always more than make up for the fact that we're tapping into increasingly less interesting deposits. And so with new technologies, you can actually extract petroleum, which might seem more uh, difficult to reach than previous deposits. You can access it more easily and extract it more profitably, or at least at a lower cost uh, than before. And so you must always look at the kind of physical stuff that is around you, but you must never forget the capacity of the human brain to develop technologies to tap into those resources ever more efficiently, which is why Simon referred to the human brain as the ultimate resource. Ultimately, what is around us is not what matters. You know, there was coal for long before human beings came along, natural gas, iron ore, but this physical stuff only became a resource through the development of human technologies that allowed uh, our ancestors to turn otherwise worthless stuff into things that are valuable and to do it increasingly efficiently over time. And, when, and in the context of a market economy, Simon and others uh, will tell you, uh, you've got a few things happening. You've got a feedback mechanism, which is the price system, which tells you that when the price of a resource temporarily goes up, you know, there might be a war, there might be a shortage, there might be a new demand for a particular uh, resource. Well, this uh, tells people to look for more of the stuff to uh, use it ever more efficiently and to develop substitute. And through the combination of these three forces triggered by the price mechanism, humanity has been able to expand its resource base. And after a century, uh, after almost two centuries of industrialization, we've never not only run out of uh, depletable, the theoretically depletable resources, we've got more resources than ever before. I like to think of the uh, Ehrlich of the 19th century screaming from the rooftops, "Oh no, we're running out of whale blubber! How will we? <laughs> exactly. How will we heat our our homes? How will we have light? Oh no, it's all we're all going to hell!" And uh, the Simons of the 19th century pointing out, "Well, you know that sticky stuff that keeps pouring out, bubbling yeah. up out of the ground that might that might be important in the future." This is what the Ehrlichs of the world don't want you to think about. They want you to believe that the Earth is a fixed and shrinking pie, 
and that every new baby that is born is just another mouth looking to consume a piece of that pie. In reality, we live on a vast and expanding pie, made larger in each and every generation since Thomas Malthus started spreading his chicken little population propaganda by the very thing that these Malthusians hate the most. People. Babies are not a burden on the planet, not a cancer that must be eliminated from the face of the earth, but our most precious resource. Among the babies being born today are the inventors and explorers of tomorrow, the artists who will enrich our lives, and the visionaries who will help us to see the world in a way we can't even imagine yet. They will create new technologies that make hitherto unknown and unthinkable resources available to us, and will help to lift billions more out of abject poverty, just as billions have been lifted out of poverty in the decades since Ehrlich first started warning us that the sky was falling. Ehrlich and the other population fearmongers have been wrong in each and every generation since Malthus started predicting famines and the collapse of civilization two centuries ago. And they will continue to be wrong until the world, realizing that the human brain is the only resource that really matters, stops giving charlatans like Ehrlich awards and starts concentrating on the demographic winter that is the real threat to humanity. The Corbett Report is brought to you by the Data DVD series. From 2007 to 2016, each set of Data DVDs contains every podcast, every article, every video, and every interview from that year of the website. Celebrate the Corbett Report's decade of alternative media dominance by owning it all, only on these Data DVDs. For more information, please go to corbettreport.com slash data DVD. You just got to remember this. There's no way out of the arithmetic. There will never be 7 billion people in the year 2000.